can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. This is a tough city to love. Yeah. This is a city that hurts you. Yeah. And to, to be in love with it is like being in an abusive relationship sometimes. That's it's how a, I feel it, in the relationship it, with you. I hope not. Yeah. I hope not. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Yeah, so here we are back with season two. We are going to be talking about everything from politics to pop culture. And we're going to have guests on too this season. History always matters in everything we cover. And of course, this is an election year. We got midterms. We're going to be talking on this show in the midst of the launch of the presidential race. So there's going to be so much to figure out and to invite so many best friends, some old, some new, to help us make sense of the madness of the moment we're still living in. So today's episode is really special. Khalil, we got to do a live taping together in our hometown. The boys are back in town. (laughs) We went back to where it all began. (laughs) That's right. So it was uh, actually on September 11th. Yep. And it was a crazy rainy day. There was a torrential rain. It was also the Bears' home opener. Uh, I remember yes. that we got caught in some traffic. Monsoon conditions. But you know what they say about rain? Like, you know, and rain for weddings is is like a good sign. It's a sense of renewal, of promise, of, of like a, a fresh start. I felt that way. Perfect metaphor. We did the taping as part of the Chicago Humanities Festival. And we got to talk at this amazing venue, yeah. the South Shore Cultural Center, you know, which we both spent time in as kids. Right. This just beautiful space that we sat in, like a glass atrium, just about a block from Lake Michigan. 
you know, even on that rainy day, once it cleared, like the sun started to come in and just the space itself felt magical. It's a place where for many decades, uh, some of Chicago's elite Southsiders would go there to play golf. And, you know, it was not a place that was actually welcoming to everyone, but it is today. And that's what's so important about the Chicago Humanities Festival, hosting it there. And for you and I to be in that space, to not only talk about what it means to be Chicagoans, but to do it with our own hometown community, very special. So let's cut to the live tape. I mean, here we are in reality, but let's go to the recording. Let's do it. Just to place this uh, moment in context, we're here at South Shore Cultural Center. I mean, I remember walking by here as a kid. I literally spent my earliest years at 69th and Oglesby, which is four blocks from where we are, just across the street at a place that was a nondescript apartment building, but I went to a nursery uh, pre-K place called Toddler's Inn. Um, so Ben. Yeah, I grew up in, in, in South Shore, so I grew up not too far from here and, and played tennis here when it was still, it was called the South Shore Country Club, but wasn't really a country club anymore. And actually people from my neighborhood helped preserve it and then restore it. Yeah. There was sort of a, a, a discussion about what would happen, what, what its next iteration would be, and here we are. Yeah, no, um, it looks great. You know, here we are in Chicago, and we're in a city that's demonized all the time, and that has all sorts of population changes going on. And even with a, a mayoral race, you know, heating up, there's so many discussions about the city in its present form and its future. And so this question of like, well, what does it mean to be a Chicagoan? What is a Chicago identity? And a way to come at that is just to talk at least at the start of like what it means to us. Yeah, yeah. So our producers of the show often tell us like our listeners only care so much about Chicago. Uh, so since we're here, we get to lean into that a yeah. little bit and actually talk about our origin story. Yeah, so let's start with a, a Chicago. What, are, what is your Chicago origin story? Yeah. How did you get here? Yeah. So, so you heard I teach at Harvard, which is, you know, what you think it is, really snobby and arrogant and this sort of thing, but a lot of smart students. Hey, everybody. <laughs> That's how long it took him to mention Harvard. <laughs> like, that is the, that's the longest so far. I, I, it's a guarantee. There it is. Whatever, whatever. So, so I, <laughs> it, it, it came up because I was teaching just this week and we were talking about the fact that I happen to be um, a third-generation Chicagoan. Uh -oh. um, so my parents were born here. Shorty Ruff, by the way, for a listener, sends her regards. This is my mother's nickname as a, as a tough customer. Um, my mother was born here. Her mother was born here. And that's the third generation. And so it happens, my great-grandmother, Laura Oliver, um, married in the 1920s a man named Eugene Gavin. Who, this, is, this is your mother's side of the family. This is my mother's side of the okay. family, who migrated from Mississippi. They both migrated from Mississippi. They could not marry there, but they married here in the 1920s. And so I take a measure of pride of actually being basically descendants of people who got here at the turn of the century, or not quite the turn of the century, but in the 1920s, and therefore the early Great Migration. Yeah, so you, you have a lot of roots here. A lot right? of roots. So. I was born here, and my parents, who were in the audience, moved, wave, 
Wave Austin's, yes. <laughs> they moved to Chicago in their early 30s. Uh, my father got a job at the University of Chicago. So they're, they, you know, I'm, I guess I'm like, does yeah. that make me a first generation? You're a first gener. And, and they stayed. You know, they moved here and stayed, which is another sort of, you know, cities are about, are measured in some ways by their, um, you know, their, their ability to attract people and attract business and then to retain them. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, you're talking about the black migration and, you know, before that, uh, to, you know, the beginning of the 20th century and, and even before immigrants from Europe uh, and in the 1990s. Uh, so many people from Mexico who moved here and, you know, to the point that uh, Latinos are a third of the population now. Do you have some Latino heritage? This is the first no, no, time I'm just, I'm just, uh, oh, okay, got I'm it. just riffing here. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, and then I'd say that, uh, you know, my wife and I uh, had a kind of professional walkabout where we moved all over the country and decided at some point about 10 years ago that we wanted to come back home. And we wanted our kids to be raised here around our family. And this is where we sort of, you know, we wanted to make our stand. You know, like when you, you live in other cities, there's a, kind of, uh, there's a kind of great freedom at times of not being rooted there where you don't have to worry so much about the messy history. You don't have to own it. Right. And here you, you have to own it, but the stakes are higher. Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I have moved... Uh, from Chicago since essentially I was 22 years old. So unlike Ben, um, I haven't been back. And I've been enjoying the city uh, by virtue of family and relatives who live here. My mom lived here un until quite recently. Her entire life had never lived literally anywhere else. Uh, so I'm a little bit uh, opposite to Ben in that I chose not to come back to Chicago. But is this a good place to make your announcement? <laughs> about about, about gonna, the return? No, the run for mayor. Yeah, yeah, well, I, <laughs> I thought, did you I mean, isn't, to, isn't everybody doing that? I mean, to bring that up? <laughs> Inside joke, because I said, if I ever came back to Chicago, I'd want to come back to, to be mayor. So it, this, is actually, <laughs> this, this is actually real talk. But, but I want to say just one more thing about the other side of my family, which is more famous. Uh, and again, listeners of the show at, at least know this. So turns out that Ben lives... Uh, today a couple of blocks from where my great-grandfather Elijah Muhammad who was also a migrant from Georgia born in 1899 arrived in Chicago um, sometime in the 1930s um, and ultimately built the Nation of Islam which if all of you know is part of the Hyde Park uh, Kenwood area and where Ben and Danielle's yeah. family currently live and of course that's another kind of Chicago story that makes not only the city quite unique and interesting, but also makes this entire area and thinking about a Chicago identity fascinating. I mean, something yeah. we talked about uh, when we were thinking about this show, like where else in America could you imagine like Muhammad Ali, Elijah Muhammad, um, Jesse Jackson, uh, eventually Michelle and Barack Obama and Harold Washington as nodes of some of the most important political debates, movements in America. Pretty awesome. Hey, this is Khalil. We need to take a short break. We'll be right back. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves 
business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome back to some of my best friends are... I'm doing that time-space continuum thing, and I'm, I'm not at the live event. But now we're going to go back to the live event from the Chicago Humanities Festival. And, and so, so we talked about, you know, what are our Chicago origin stories. But there's a way where it, to feel like there's also a consciousness about being a Chicago and a kind of uh, Chicago being sort of imprinted on your DNA. And, and we were younger the, before people really got tattoos of like the Chicago flag or anything like that, or, or 312 tattoos or 773. Or, oh, uh, all right, all right. So, you know, let's talk about that moment where we really sort of started to think of, of Chicago as integral to our identity. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Are right, you first? Okay. For me, it had to do with driving. I could think of a specific moment. I think it's the summer after high school. So this is like 1989, and maybe it was 1990. And I had a job as a bagel delivery man. I remember that. And the, Didn't you just have the white pickup truck then? I had, <laughs> <laughs> See? You had, you, had to, you had to make it scary. Uh, I had a job as a bagel delivery man, and I had to get up at 5 a.m., and the, the, it was called the Bagel Nosh, and it was a bagel store on Rush Street. And Rush Street of 1989 or 1990 was sort of like in transition. That if you're older, Rush Street signifies kind of, you know, something, a red light district or sort of like kind of sleazy a little bit. And today it's pretty gentrified and, and ritzy. 
it was sort of both at that moment, or like probably more on the sleazy side. And I'd get there at 5 a.m. and I'd have to pull in an alley behind the, the shop and like flash my brights to clear out all the rats who would scurry away. <laughs> and then I would load up the truck with bagels and drive all over the city. And there was a feeling of, as a young person too, of moving through the city at a time when there weren't a lot of people there and where it felt like I kind of had ownership of the city. It felt like something out of like a Carl Sandburg poem where like this, this Goliath, which is asleep. He's getting literary on and, and And here I am, you know, seeing and part of the mechanism that's gonna be when it wakes. And you know, the, the only other people out there were other delivery people, you know, the, the newspaper trucks and things like that. And also traversing the city in a way that I hadn't before either, of going through the loop, but also like the south side, and you'd have to come back on State Street down the, the State Street corridor of where there were, you know, used to be public housing for miles. And I just felt like I got a better understanding of the city, of being a part of it, of its geography and its segregation. And um, yeah, I felt, I felt at that point like, like a kind of pride of, of place. Yeah. So, you know, people often say that you have to leave a city to actually appreciate what you've lost or what you had. And I think of this kind of consciousness, Chicago consciousness, uh, in a slightly different way. So I was about nine years old when my father moved to New York. He'd left Chicago. He'd worked at Johnson & Johnson Publishing as a photographer. He spent an entire career as a photojournalist. Uh, but he got his start um, with Johnson Publishing. And he leaves for Charlotte in 1978, lands in New York by 1980, and he's still there. So I visit him about nine years old for the first time, and uh, I'm visiting with his friends, uh, his new New York area friends who have kids. And the mom in this relationship is keeping me for the weekend, because by then my father was a bachelor, and so you know, he's keeping me for the summer where I really spent a lot of childhood summers from about nine to 15 or 16. And so I meet this brood of like kids of all ages, younger than me, older than me. They welcome me into their family. And within seconds of talking to them, someone's like, you have a funny accent. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? And they were like, you just said tan. And I was like, what, 10? They're like, no, tan. I was like, no, 10. Anyway, it was my <laughs> Mississippi accent by way of Chicago that these New Yorkers who were my peers as kids were picking up on. And that was literally the first moment when I thought to myself, holy smokes, like I sound different. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's then you had to be like us and them. And I'm on, I'm on <laughs> team us, I'm on team Chicago. Well, it, it did make me very proud. This is just- did, a, did, you, did you do the thing where you then like went home and like, practice so you didn't say you said ken well you know i wanted to get to harvard eventually so i yeah, had to get rid yeah. of the accent i mean so I, so i had something similar i mean maybe everyone does who's from chicago where you travel and maybe maybe this is even more of a white thing where other where, where you meet people and they're like oh you're from chicago i'm from chicago and i would always call it like the double question yep because the next question was where are you from right not, not from Chicago. They want to know if you're from Deerfield or, or Winneka uh, or, or whatever. They didn't or really mean Chicago. Yep. And so there's also that, you know, not just defining it of another city, but of like suburb or city. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the first time I remember being pissed off as a Chicagoan too. And that is when I was about 
uh, 10 years old, I had to commute to Chatham from Regent's Park where I lived by that age. And this and, was and mostly- And Regent's Park is a, a yeah, apartment Regents, building in yeah, Hyde Park. Yeah, 51st and Lakeshore Drive um, to this day. Uh, you can actually see it on a clear day from, from uh, just outside this window. And I was essentially going to this elementary school at 83rd and St. Lawrence called Dixon Elementary. And my mom just wanted continuity. So rather than me coming to go to Ray or something like that, I, I stayed going to Dixon. So I had to have, catch the number one from Lakeshore Drive to Cottage Grove and the number four, Cottage Grove from 51st to 83rd Street. Deep, deep, deep Chicago deep, cuts there. Deep Chicago. And... I remember one winter day, it was about negative 40 degrees, uh, as was commonly true uh, back in those days in the early 80s when global warming wasn't what it is today. And the bus took forever to come. When it finally arrived, it was so full with people, it didn't even stop at the light. And I'll, this is a memory seared in my memory. I literally screamed out of frustration, picked up the nearest rock I could find and hurled it at the back of the bus. I mean, this is not a pride, prideful moment, yeah. but it is the moment when I thought like, this city sucks, right? Like I'm <laughs> trying to get to school and I'm freezing. So that was the story. Yeah. Last one I want to tell about being a Chicagoan is, so you heard about the Schomburg Center, which is a cultural institution in Harlem, been around since the 1920s, really important place. But for anyone who's visited Harlem, has anyone visited Harlem in this audience? Okay, you know, Harlemites, think that Black Harlem is the, as used to be called, the Negro capital of the world. And therefore, tremendous amounts of pride yep. in that place. Yeah. And I kind of spent the first couple of years as the director of the Schomburg in, in 2011, kind of pushing back against that. I mean, like literally from the stage of the institution, reminding them that Harlem had never produced the political geniuses and the political greats that Chicago had produced, going back to Oscar DePriest, who was the first black person to go to Congress after Reconstruction. And that Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who of course was the famous congressman, didn't get there to 1944. And then of course, all the other stuff leading up to the President Obama and all that was just gravy. But I felt very prideful in Harlem, reminding them that my city was actually better. Yeah. <laughs> So that makes me think that there's another way that you, you get a Chicago consciousness or that for us. Like we're as professionals, we've also studied Chicago. I've you know, written about Chicago. It's part of our work. Yep. And so maybe we just talk about that a little bit, about approaching the city when it becomes an idea that you are grappling with in that way. And, and one of the things I started when, as, as you so know. So you you've written this book, tell, tell everyone about. Well, I, I, I wrote, a, my first book is about uh, public housing in Chicago. It's about Cabrini Green, it's called High Risers. But, and, and working on it, I also started to think about how little Chicago as a subject was part of my education. Mm -hmm. uh, was that true for you too? Did you ever have like? Yeah, no, it's formally, I, I, we talked about this a lot, like situating ourselves as kids in this important city, we don't remember like being taught about this first black mayor in the moment and the significance of that as something transformational, both for the national politics, but also for the meaning of the city itself, even though we literally lived, you know, in the same neighborhood as Harold Washington did. Yeah, I don't even remember, like, uh, you know, when I say remember, meaning it could have happened, I just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> but uh, being assigned books like The Jungle, 
or uh, you know Upton Sinclair's muckraking book. We Rich, all remember Richard Wright books. You know Native Son, uh, a black boy. I don't. Rem those were not books as part of the curriculum. Um, you didn't take the uh, the African American literature elective at Kenwood. Was that so. part of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Okay, yeah. see. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you, you were. You know, you were still wrestling. I was with still. Your, I was your still whiteness, Jewish identity, kind of thing. It was still. So yeah, just it, it was not. It was not so prevalent. So I think you know part of it was like just going back and and devouring everything, uh, studying the history of the city and the literature about the city, and like you know if you're going to be a Chicago writer, like to to try to learn everything about it. Yeah, and I think it's something about the richness of everything we experience in a community of people nurturing us that made it possible to to look back and later see the city as something worth knowing. So for example, Ben's father uh, is University of Chicago, professor emeritus. Um, we both were at Regenstein as kids, but by accident, I ended up writing about the University of Chicago in my work because it was the first real place for the study of the city. And the study of the city as a place of immigrant assimilation, the study of the city as quote unquote back then race relations. Um, and here we were literally part of this community at products of it and then later able to look back on it. Yeah, and, and I think we write about it and other people do too because the city is endlessly fascinating. That the, the history and the present is so wrought with that history of you know, problematic stuff and interesting things and, and it's alive in so many ways. I mean, I think about now that there's this John Burge curriculum in the public schools. Right, you wanna tell them who John Burge is? John Burge, the, the police officer who, you know, w w was was part of a, a midnight crew in in on literally a, tortured a, a station house, two hundred people. Yeah, tortured more than a hundred men, black men, uh, into false confessions. And uh, as part of reparations, the, the city agreed to to teach this curriculum. That's that's you know, I think I think you know we we've talked about this before, even on the show when we were talking about critical race theory. That I think both of us believe professionally and personally that you have to engage with the really messy and difficult history of a place. Yep. And that is what is, uh, you know, it is, you know, you talked about on the bus in Chicago and hating the city. This is a tough city to love. Yep. This is a city that hurts you. Yeah. And to, to be in love with it is like being in an abusive relationship sometimes. That's it's how a, I it, feel in the relationship with you. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> like it's dysfunctional. Um, and you know, it, it's, it is all of the magnificent things and it is the, the richness of the history, which is so, so, so fraught with who we are as a, a country and as a city that, that makes us an important place and a place to try to, to make it better in some ways. Yeah. And I think it's fair to also think about some influences. So um, we haven't talked about this on the show, but I think it's fair to say, like your brother, Jake, Jake Austin, is here. Famous and, Jake Austin. <laughs> and we all went to high school together. Jake is a couple of years older than us, but you know, we had, we had that experience. We all went to Kenwood. And your brother was in many ways a booster for the city um, long before you and I were even thinking about these issues, um, both as a, as a zine editor and being able to describe the music scene in the city. Like, I mean, I wasn't paying that close attention, but enough attention to know that, that this is what Jake was doing. He began writing about the city. He, he literally has a TV show called Chic A Go Go. 
<laughs> I mean, you can't be more of a booster than that. <laughs> exactly. With a theme, a theme song. Yeah. Yeah. You want to sing it? No, but if in, in the <laughs> podcast version of it, this is what it would ah. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So, so let's, let's talk about a harder subject, which yeah. is, you know, nobody really talks about Chicago now without talking about, say, the violence. Right. And, you know, you're either, when you even talk about being a booster, you're sort of saying there's more to the city than that, but you're actually sort of responding to it or you're engaging with it. Yeah. And it really is part of every conversation yeah. here. And I wanted to, to actually pick up on a theme because you've sort of already talked a little bit about this, but... A lot of the work that I do as an academic is around policing. And at one point, you know, someone asked us, uh, we met someone uh, earlier today, said, you know, like, what inspired you to do the show? And the short answer is that we had an opportunity through the Pushkin, uh, which is a company co-owned by Malcolm Gladwell, the journalist and writer, and Jacob Weisberg. But the idea of the show came because I was doing academic work on the criminal justice system. I'd written about it as a historian, and I was doing work with other social scientists around how to think about a different kind of policing. 
And Ben was actually reporting on policing in the early days of Black Lives Matter, sort of the from the Michael Brown moment to the Laquan McDonald moment and was on the ground reporting around the city about various forms of activism yeah. and, and talking about the tough stuff. Like for us, it was not just the tough stuff and the questions about like, what's wrong with your city? But it was also about trying to answer these tough questions and to think about like, what's the future of the city? Like, is this a moment for us in different capacities to talk through what it means to solve for these problems? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that as a, a Chicago writer, I am trying to push against the, the, the stereotypes of the city. You know, the Chirac image, or we have a, there's a Republican running for governor now, and he's been, he's been really pushing this idea of the Chicago as hellhole, of sort of adopting the language. It's American carnage. This is a version yeah, of Trumpism. Yeah, adopting the Trump language to sort of, you know, he, it, it's, you know, it's also fear of crime in Chicago and sort of bail reform, but it's like, it's an easy uh, dog whistle, and it's probably even more explicit than dog whistle um, to, to rile up people. Yeah, I did a, I did a reporting, uh, project once uh, not too long ago where I went around to 20 high schools in the city and my idea was I would interview and profile all the valedictorians of all these different high schools I that, that. That, that they're as much representative of the city right. and children in the city and in the public school system as either victims or perpetrators of violence. Right. And, you know, in some ways, much, much more representative of, you know, most students. Yeah. And, you know, that was a, that was a thing. Was great. With, it was an amazing thing to even just like to be inside 20 different high schools across the city. Yeah. So I, I take a much shorter version of like how to defend against the negative stereotypes. And that is I just tell people Chicago is the greatest beach town on earth. It's beach like, town. Where, yeah. where, where else can you have access to this amazing lake like at just a crossing a bridge. It's amazing. So yes, that, that's the simple version. Yeah. But, but here we are, right? And here we are. Um, I got here on Friday and on the hour and a half drive, which was about as long as it took to fly here from the East Coast, uh, to Hyde Park, WBZ was reporting on the killing of a 17-year-old um, blocks away from our high school. He was out at lunch. A, a Kenwood High School a student. Kenwood High School student. Middle of the day, 1235. Yeah. And, and also was killed in a parking lot on East End, which is the very parking lot I crossed for 10 years of my life to leave my apartment building to come to high school or to go anywhere else from my apartment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot of just this young man. Uh, I think he just transferred to the school this year. And th this beautiful start to the school year, I've been walking around the neighborhood and seeing Kenwood students out and about playing you know, football and practicing band and, and lacrosse and just like, just so energetic. And to think, to think this is life is over. And, and, uh, you know, as much as I'm saying of, of pushing against the stereotype and writing about other things, this is a fact, right? It happened. Right. And, and the reverberations are real. Yeah. People make choices at that point to leave the city to not send their kids to Kenwood High School to, to get away. Yeah. You know, why would I, if that's where danger is, and, and then there's all the sort of like political things that happen. You know, in this case, the school board accusing Lori Lightfoot of not keeping children safe, of, you know, asking for more policing, all these other things that we know intellectually, like, 
there's no police officer that can stop that crime. Right. You can respond to it in some way, and then you can say, like, maybe they could, you know, hunt these people down. But that's, it's not a policing issue. But something, something happened that, that is both real and, and undeniable and, and really tears at the fabric of, of our community. Yeah. Yeah, ben, ben and I have been talking a lot about the depopulation of the city, um, and, and Ben's been doing some writing about it uh, more generally. Uh, it's personal. I mean, I think that's the point. It's personal. It's not just, it's not just our neighborhood, and it's not just the people who are one degree removed. As you know, a year ago, there were a series of, of just outrageous uh, shootings in Hyde Park that we actually talked about in one of our episodes. And, and so here we are again. Many of you know my mom left the city um, after having purchased a handgun for personal protection and told me you know, that her, her, her handgun was on its way. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like she's in her apartment on the Citizen app. And as far as she's concerned, they're coming for her eventually. And she's, and so, she's got a shaky hand. Yeah, she's got, yeah. She is not, she should <laughs> so, not be so, handling a firearm. So this, this is not good, but I think, you know, so now she's with us, but I think, I think we don't want that, right? So the challenge for us um, as people who do get to speak on behalf of the city, whether, whether we get it right or, or wrong in terms of how we describe Chicago, the challenge for us is to simultaneously be honest about what these existential realities mean for people who live their lives here every day and simultaneously push back against the bad ideas that push us towards a past that is not the source of the solution in this case. Yeah, yeah. So when Ben talks about policing won't save us, like we do have to re remember that in any instance, police are reactive to violence. They, they actually, you know, un unless we could imagine a future where there are checkpoints on every corner, which did come up in some of the conversation about what happened at the University of Chicago last year or in the 53rd Street era. Yeah. But, but as we know, that's not gonna happen and it shouldn't happen. So we have to think about what do we want in terms of an infrastructure that is healthier, that is safer, that is more about economic security for people. And not to say that those guys who killed this guy needed more money in their pockets and it wouldn't have happened. But what we're really talking about is a kind of society we live in where guns are ubiquitous, poverty is growing, and therefore the combination of people feeling like they're at the short end of a stick and they're all operating on short fuses is something we can do something about. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's not on the other hand, but in moments like this, we also have to, to recognize that there is some immediate need, that people are hurting and they're full of fear and they need something. And in the void of good ideas, there'll be sort of these, these, these old ideas that have been tried already and we know don't work. Right. Um, and, but that there really is trauma, there's suffering right, right now. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's, there's something, you know, devastating. And, and I mean, you know, in other neighborhoods, in many places, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's why, you know, it happens a lot. But when it's very close to home, you, you see it up close. Um, yeah, you have to recognize that. Yeah. So let's leave folks with three good ideas about the future, right? <laughs> so three good ideas. One, we really do have to make sure that we give young people summer youth employment and massive recreational opportunities. Both of us had them. Yeah. Really important. 
yeah. because we know, I'll just use the, the social science research tells us uh, that kids who actually get to work at 14, put money in their pocket, kids who there's no barrier to the recreational opportunities they want or the ways to explore their own creative expression do much better than kids who essentially have a lot of free time. Two, we want to make sure that we invest in violence interruption. Yeah. Chicago is really one of the birthplaces for this idea, but Chicago has been one of the hardest places for violence interruption to take root. It is being exported to Jacksonville, Baltimore. New York is one of the, the places with the most um, significant investment in violence interruption. And so one of the things that we know, we don't know, we still haven't learned exactly what set this off, but violence interrupters get ahead of it. They actually do the work that police can't do which is that they have trust within those communities, they're able to talk people off the ledge so that they're not inclined to use violence because as public health experts say, violence is a disease and it is contagious. And once you catch it, you are much more likely to express it. So those two ideas about investing in our young people, as well as investing in actual things that work to keep people from killing people, to me are very productive and it's no reason why Chicago can't invest in those rather than continuing to have a conversation in this next mayoral race about how much policing, how much more policing. Yeah. And, and we're reminding ourselves that I was talking about the, the, the governor's race and when, when the Republican candidate called Chicago a hellhole, there was a, an online sort of social media response of, you know, post something about Chicago that is, you know, conflicts with that, that shows its beauty and don't just show the skyline. And, you know, this is a place full of love and this yep. is a place full of beauty. Yep. And those things are not erased. They're, they're side by side with a lot of the problems, but they're, 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 not, they're, not, they're not gone. They're always here, too. Yeah. So, you know, we usually sign off the show in the way that most people know. And I think we're going to do the same. Yeah. But I want to add to that that not only do I love you, man, but I love this city. Uh, I love you and I love this city, too. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. On this episode, we have to give a special thanks to the Chicago Humanities Festival for bringing us together and letting us speak at their amazing event. That's right. 
And we also need to thank Jake Austin, your brother, my brother, and the Goblins for letting us use their music on this episode. Man, you can watch Chicago online, look it up on YouTube, and uh, you know, definitely listen to the music. <laughs> Chicago, go. Wait, wait. So on the show that we recorded in Chicago, you said that your great-grandfather and your great-grandmother couldn't get married in the South. Yeah, man. How come they couldn't get married? Well, what I forgot to say is that my great-grandfather was basically a white dude and basically makes it... Wait, when you say... <laughs> when you say... Ba- what does basically a white well, dude mean? How well, is that? Well, he, he, he looked white. He was white presenting and his siblings passed as white. So basically, his whole family considered themselves white. Dude... <laughs> you you are talking about like running for office in Chicago or in Illinois and you could pull this Barack Obama shit of being like my my great white great grandfather like you got to use that you got to use that you can't you got to like put that forward like that is power uh, here like you got you could have yeah, both so like only in America can the great grandson of a white dude from Mississippi my <laughs> my white great grandfather and my <laughs> Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.